As we are preaching through the book of Galatians in the New Testament, we've been reading out of the old, out of the book of Jeremiah, not kind of sequentially through it, uh, but choosing some select passages, particularly where where God is talking to Israel about what's going wrong. And and you'll see in, in today's text, God has some problem with the shepherds. And when he says shepherds, he doesn't mean the literal people who watch sheep. He means the people who are supposed to be spiritually taking care of Israel. He has some issues with them that he's going to bring up. And so we'll read this together. Nathan Aaron's is going to come and read it for us. But you can follow along here in your bulletin. Nathan, if you'd read. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. All right, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Galatians. We've been preaching through that this fall. We're kind of getting close to the midpoint, six chapters long. We're in chapter three now. It's printed there in the back middle of of your bulletin. Uh, And before uh, before I come and preach on it, um, Ashley is coming to read it for us. There you are. Sorry, slipped my mind for a second. You can follow along here as she reads. Galatians 3, 1 to 9. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All right, we're going to get into this text together. Uh, Perhaps you know the name Pat Riley. He's a famous basketball player, coach, and now executive. Uh, He wrote a book in the early 1980s. And in that book, he talked about this concept that he called the disease of more. And Riley was trying to explain why great basketball teams fall apart. 
for reasons other than, you know, age, athletic decline. And Riley argues that what happens to great teams is that when they're trying to win a championship for the first time, players make sacrifices. They accept less playing time or fewer shots, less prestige and fame in order to help the team win. But if and when a team wins, often teams and players contract what he calls the disease of more. And what is that? This means everyone wants a little bit more. Everyone wants a few more shots, a bit more playing time, a bit more fame. They cease to be content. And the attitude, the sacrifices that made success possible in the first place, they're gone and teams fall apart because everyone can't have more, the disease of more. Now I want to restate Riley's maxim in a slightly different way. Um, we might say it this way. What makes a team great in the first place is the same thing that enables a team to remain great over time. The way to become a great team is the same way that to remain a great team. Now, why do I say this? Because Paul has a similar principle in mind when it comes to our spiritual lives. He's trying to get the Galatians to see that the way into the Christian life is also the way forward in the Christian life. These are not different things. There's not different mechanisms. The way you become a Christian, Paul is going to argue, is the way you grow as a Christian. And just like Pilate Riley's The Disease of More, if you forget this, if you adopt a different method of growth, if you leave this behind, your spiritual life will go off the rails. So let's get into this text together. Just two sections today. The first is sort of what I've been speaking. I will call it the way in is the way forward. And part two, Abraham as the example. So what, what does Abraham have to do with this whole discussion? Now, one of the things you'll notice if, if you've been here the past couple weeks as we shift into Galatians 3 is that the kind of arguments Paul is making are changing. Uh, before, he made all these arguments from personal experience. He gave us really the longest testimony we have of his spiritual change, how the gospel worked in his life, how he confronted Peter with the gospel when he wasn't walking in step with it. All these personal examples, illustrations. But now in chapter 3, the arguments shift to more biblical theological arguments. There's going to be, a little bit today, but a lot in the weeks to come, a lot of Old Testament references and allusions and teachings. And this is mostly because the people who are troubling the Galatians, these Judaizers, they were really into the Old Testament. So Paul's like, all right, you want to argue Old Testament? Let's go Old Testament. And he's going to use their sort of source material to undermine their arguments. But in general, personal is shifting to more theological, biblical. Yet, the chapter opens with a very personal and somewhat blunt appeal. Oh, foolish Galatians, exclamation point. Who has bewitched you? Now, it's never nice to be called a fool, to be called foolish. It actually happens twice. Again, in verse 3, Paul calls him foolish again. But he means what he says. He means it is a foolish, it is unwise to abandon Christ in favor of the law. It's such an egregious error that Paul wonders out loud if they've been bewitched. Sounds like Harry Potter or something. Like, is, has someone cast a spell on you? Are you hypnotized? And actually, the literal translation is like being under an evil eye. But to be bewitched means you're not in control of your faculties. You're not acting like yourself. Like if you get hypnotized and you, you know, think you're a beaver and start chewing on a table leg or something like that. Paul is saying the only reasonable explanation for your behavior is if someone has you under an evil spell. Now, does Paul believe they're actually bewitched? It's hard to say. I mean, I guess there's the possibility of interference by demons or evil spiritual beings. It's possible. But the extreme language, no matter how you kind of take it, suggests 
that Paul is extremely upset. <laughs> this is egregious behavior. He's sort of pulling his hair out. Can't believe you're doing this. Then look at what he says next. With these people are going completely off the rails. What does he say to them? He says, don't you remember Jesus? He says, before your eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now read that carefully. He doesn't mean they personally observed the crucifixion the Galatian area, hundreds and hundreds of kilometers away from Jerusalem. But before their eyes, Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. He uses this Greek word that sort of indicates that the crucifixion of Jesus was, was put up like a billboard beside the highway. Now, billboards are often kind of you know, forgettable. The Greek also indicates a kind of vividness, that a picture was painted for them in the preaching of the gospel of what Jesus Christ did, and it captured their attention. So Jesus crucified wasn't a generic billboard. It was an eye-catching, fascinating roadside attraction that you just kind of can't look away from. Like that giant apple that's on the 401 past Kingston River. It's like, what is going on there? Like you just kind of stare as, you know, hopefully don't get into an accident, but you stare at it as you go by because it's unusual. Why is there a giant apple? But when these people are bewitched, Paul tries to sort of break the spell by reminding them of the gospel. He says, look, at one point in your life, you saw and believed in Jesus. The gospel was alive for you. What about you? How long has it been? I mean, I know some of you aren't Christians, but others of you surely count in decades, not just years. Others of you maybe count in, in weeks or months. These Galatian believers were probably only a year or two, maybe three into their journey as Christians, not very long. The length of time doesn't matter that much. Do you remember when the gospel was vivid to you? when it caught your eye, when it arrested your attention, simply because it maybe is now dull and faded for you does not mean that is what it is. But Paul is saying when you get off track, when you drift away, you need to be reminded of the gospel story. Now I've entitled this section, The Way In is the Way Forward, but we haven't really gotten to that. We're kind of still talking about the way in. But Paul has called them foolish. He's asked if they've bewitched. He reminded them of the gospel. Then if you look in verse 2, he fires this sort of series of four questions at them. And I'll list them for you and kind of explain each briefly. So question one, he says, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is a question about how they converted in the first place. Christians receive the spirit when they become Christians. So Paul is saying, hey, what, what led to that? Was it faith when you believed or was it works of the law? And of course, faith is the implied answer. Question two in verse three, having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? This is a question about sanctification, which is just a big word that means real-time growth in holiness and maturity. Paul says, uh, you started growing by the spirit, but now have you shifted to works of the body? Question three, verse four, did you suffer so many things in vain? This is a question about persecution. See, the Jews were not very much persecuted in the Roman Empire. They had official protected status as a religious group. But the early Christians, they belonged to a different religion, and they were persecuted. So Paul is saying, was all the persecution, all the, all the, the, the social things that were going on, was it all in vain if you're just going to return to a form of Judaism after all? And the fourth question in verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's a question about how does God work? Does God work in response to faith in him, or does he reward those who seek to earn their salvation by good deeds? 
See, Paul challenges the Galatians. He's like, think about your conversion and your sanctification and your persecution and the miraculous work of God in your midst. And he says, if you jettison faith in Christ and you take up works of the law instead, all those four things, they're all going out the window. They're all going to mean nothing. And as we discussed last week, if the gospel is left behind, justification falls apart. But now we discover that in addition, growth in holiness, our life in this world also kind of falls apart spiritually. Now these Judaizers who were troubling the Galatians, they had a kind of saying that summarized their theological position. They'd, they'd say something like this. Obviously they didn't speak English, but they, they would say, Moses finishes what Jesus began. Moses finishes what Jesus began. And what that means is that Jesus is helpful for getting things started, forgiving your sins. That, that works necessary. Go Jesus. But it's not all you need. You also need Moses, a.k.a. the law. You need more. Moses finishes what Jesus began. For Judaizers, the way in Jesus was not the way forward. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not how it works. He says, all you need for justification, sanctification, the work of God is this gospel message. You can't change yourself. You can't add to what Christ has done. The way in is the way forward. Let me give you an illustration that maybe will make this a little bit more clear. Imagine one day you visit your grandfather's house or your father's house, depending on how old you are, or just an old man's house, generic old man's house. And he tells you he has a special gift for you. And he reaches up onto his mantle and takes a baseball off the shelf, kind of scuffed up, and he hands it to you. And as you kind of turn it over in your hands, you realize it isn't just any baseball, but it's a baseball signed by Babe Ruth, hero of the New York Yankees, you know, one of the best baseball players of all time. It's hugely valuable. And you'd think, well, this is a lovely present, Great gift. But you know what this baseball needs? I think I should sign it too. Just below Babe's name. Because I was a great hitter in T-ball, you know, once upon a time. I, I will add to the value of this ball because I too am a great baseball player. Now, we kind of like shake our heads, but if you think about it, what's the harm in adding another name to the ball? Babe Ruth's name is still on it. You didn't erase Babe Ruth's name. Well, we understand that to add to our name to the ball, <laughs> we're not great baseball players, it ruins the value of the ball. We can't add any value, the only important name, it's already written. In the same way, what's the harm in adding the law to what Jesus has done? And Paul says, you're going to ruin it. The law adds no value. You either get one or the other. You either move forward by the, the work of the triune God in your life, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all named in here, They're, by grace through faith, you either move forward that way, or you move forward, or try to move forward in your own efforts. Moses doesn't finish what Jesus began. Jesus finishes what Jesus began, or the triune God finishes what the triune God began. Now, how does this translate into our regular lives? Maybe you're wondering that. How is the gospel the way into the Christian life and the way forward? I'll give you two ways. There's probably more than two, but I'll give you two for now. Well, first, though the gospel tells us you can't be saved by your own works, you trust in Christ. You're saved by the power of God, not your own power. Okay, so let's think about that principle and apply it to regular life. How can you become a more patient person? It may be possible to sort of, you know, white knuckle yourself into being better at waiting. But how do you change your heart? How do you want to be patient? I mean, how many of us have vowed to be patient and 
failed miserably at that. See, at the bottom, as you kind of dig into it, you'll find patience, real growth and patience. That's only a work of God in us. You can apply methods. You can understand yourselves better. But ultimately, change comes by the power of God. In the same way that we're saved by the power of God, so we are grown and matured by the power of God. The second way... The gospel is not just the way into the Christian life, but the way forward is because the gospel deals with us not just on the level of behavior, but also on the level of desire and motivation. Let's say you have a problem with anger, and I realize I'm picking on all the angry, impatient people. Those, that, that Venn diagram is essentially a circle, um, but I'm just sort of choosing the sins you know, I may or may not know best. But let's say you have an anger problem. To stop anger with all of its nasty friends, Simple willpower, yeah, it gets you a little bit of the way, it doesn't go very far. To, real, to really begin to deal with anger means recognizing something or someone has replaced Jesus as the functional savior in, in some situation we're in. Instead of trusting in Christ, we're trusting in something else to make us feel right and good. So simply hoping, maybe God will make me a less angry person, that has limited utility. See, we have to inquire of our anger. What is it that we need so deeply? What do we think is being withheld from us that we really feel like we need to get by? See, you might have two people in front of you who are both angry. They look very much alike in their outer behavior, but the way you answer that question about uh, desire and motivation may reveal stark differences. Angry person number one might answer, well, I need to be in control. And when a car cuts me off in traffic or the ref is unfair to my soccer team or whatever, I can't control those things and it enrages me. But a person who loves comfort might answer that question very differently. Angry person number two. Well, I need the house really quiet. And if it isn't quiet, then I will make it so. And I get mad when people bump me out of my routine or need things from me or create an environment that I don't like. When you begin to see that your anger means you love control or comfort or something else too much, that these things have become little emperors in your life making demands of you, then you understand the gospel is really the only answer to your anger problem. Do you really think you can be less angry by trying hard? Do you really think you can stop being jealous by telling yourself, don't care so much? Do you really think you can stop lusting by telling yourself, I'm not going to look again? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Do you you hear what Paul is doing? How did you get the Spirit in the first place? Have you made any growth at all in your past? If you want to follow laws, there are lots of religions you can choose from that have extensive lists of laws. But listen, Christianity is not one. There is the gospel way and there is everything else. Jesus completes what Jesus started. That is the way we move forward. That is the only way. This is what Paul is arguing. Now, all this stuff about Abraham, let's do part two. Because seemingly out of the blue, it's like in the middle of a sentence, Paul begins to speak about Abraham. And to all of us modern readers, or maybe to many of us modern readers, we're like, wait, what's Abraham doing here? Were we talking about the law? And if you know your Old Testament timeline, you know Abraham came hundreds of years before the law. So he didn't even have the law. What are we talking about? What relevance does he have to the conversation? Well, let me, let me try to explain. So these Judaizers, these people who were insisting on the law, they loved talking about Abraham. He was their guy. I mean, Moses was also their guy, but he was, also, he was one of their guys. Because 
He received, he was the first one to receive the covenant sign of circumcision. That when God made promises to him for the first time, when God had made promises to a human, there was this, there was this physical sign attached to it. And these teachers who loved the law, and they came and they were trying to teach the Galatians to follow the law, they would turn in their scrolls, scroll in their scrolls, to Genesis 17, and they would say, look, look here, God commanded Abraham to circumcise himself and all the males in his family, and look, Abraham obeyed, and that is why God blessed him. It says it right here in Genesis 17. And these Judaizers would say, there's a clear pattern. Obedience to the law leads to blessing and really to, to salvation itself. And interestingly, if you go read the book of Maccabees, not in our Protestant Bibles, you have to borrow one from a Catholic friend or whatever, but 1 Maccabees 2.52, it says this, Abraham was found faithful when he was tested and it was counted to him as righteousness. Did you hear the subtle shift? Abraham was counted righteous, we all agree on that, but he was counted good because he was faithful to the law. So Maccabees teaches it was something Abraham did. And this is what a lot of these teachers are saying. See, this is what the scriptures say. We're justified by our, by our faithfulness. Look at Abraham. Look at Genesis 17. So what Paul is doing, with the guidance, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so wise, that quote in verse 6 is from Genesis 15, not Genesis 17. So Paul, as it were, sort of reaches back behind, beyond circumcision, before the covenant, before Abraham had done everything, and he said, look, this is where salvation comes from. It's like in the Narnia books where Aslan's like, there's a deeper magic, you know, that you don't know. Paul is saying there is a deeper truth. There's something older than Genesis 17 that changes and informs everything that comes after it, and you have to know that. Because in Genesis 15, God speaks to Abraham and he promises to bless him. He promises to make his descendants as numerous as the stars and the sand. Maybe you know this passage. And Abraham is old and childless and he's married to an old and barren woman well past her childbearing years, Sarah. And God makes these huge promises to Abraham when Abraham was an uncircumcised Chaldean living in a desolate land. Nothing had happened yet. All God had done was promise things. And Genesis 15, 6, quoted here, says, Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Now, why does this matter? Because justification, righteousness, it came to Abraham before circumcision, before the law, before Abraham had done anything. And if you go read the story of Abraham, you find out, Abraham, not that righteous. <laughs> he had a lot of rough moments. We preached through his story here. It was awkward at points. Genesis 16, the chapter after these promises, Abraham's like, what if I took a second wife as a concubine in order to have children by her? Surprise, surprise, it goes terribly. Huge family conflict and everything. A couple chapters after that, Abraham, he goes to this other place. He has to pretend, or he doesn't have to. He pretends Sarah is his sister so the king won't kill him. Say, like, what if we just put you into jeopardy, save my skin? Like, you read Abraham's story, you're like, this guy is not righteous. He doesn't act righteously. And it's one of the reasons, with all due respect to my Catholic friends, we don't regard Maccabees as inspired scripture. Because Abraham was not justified by his steadfastness under trial. That's not how he was declared righteous. He was not righteous in his actions, not all the time. He was declared righteous by God because he believed God, because he had faith. Now, I know this feels a bit distant, a bit alien to us. It's like, yeah, this was thousands of years ago. What, what's the relevance? I think we get stuck 
over and over, thinking about righteousness and goodness as belonging to the realm of works, belonging to the realm of the things that we do. And Abraham shows us it can't work like that. If we're just going to stack up our deeds, there are no righteous people. So he argues in Romans over and over. And there must be what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness. There has to be a righteousness from beyond us. That's not ours. It has to come to us by faith. Can't come from circumcision because Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. It can't come from the law because Abraham was justified long before the law came. He was declared righteous because he believed God. One other nuance here. It doesn't say that Abraham believed in God. The verse is not saying, well, Abraham was a theist or a deist. He's just acknowledging that God exists. He believed God. He trusted God. He bet his whole life and future on God, sank all his hope into God. And Paul is saying, if you want to be Abraham's son or his daughter, you must do the same. That's what verse 7 says. That's what God wants of us today. Not to do things, but faith in God, to believe God, to take God at his word. Yesterday morning, I was out for a run in Gatineau Park, P7, King Mountain Trail. And I was running up that trail down toward Keoghan Cabin, if you know that. Glorious morning for running, cool, misty, perfect running weather. I got to Keoghan, got tired, turned around, started running back. And shortly after I turned around, on the main trail, I encountered a man with a dog. He had his phone out like this, and he's standing in front of the signpost, and he's kind of staring, you know, going, phone, phone, signpost, signpost, phone. And I asked him, do you, know, do you know where you're going? And he's like, uh, sort of. And then he named the parking lot he was trying to get to. So I was like, well, you know, here's, here's the instructions. You follow the number one, you make this right, you know, so on. Gave him instructions on how to get back to his car. Now in that moment, the man with the dog has an option. Depending on what he thinks and believes about me, does he trust me? Does he believe me? Will he put his mourning into my hands if he goes a, a, an hour or two in the wrong direction? What if I was a sociopath that just ran around Gatineau Park, you know, leading people astray, giving bad directions? Who knows? See, when we're lost and we ask someone, hey, which way do I go? We are calculating two things. Do those instructions make sense? And do I trust this person giving the instructions? If it had been my toddler, my, my, my child giving the instruction, like, ah, I'm not sure I'm going to believe the, which way the five-year-old says I should go. See, when it says Abraham believed God, and that we are to do the same, it means more than simply believing the instructions of the Bible, the directions of the Bible. It means, will you put your trust in God himself? God himself. Will you do what he says? Will you follow him, even if it seems a bit counterintuitive? Because there will be times, this is what the Galatians found out, there are times of persecution and difficulty, times of struggle with sin, times of conflict, times of hurt, etc., etc. And it is in all those times when we are sort of asked and re-asked, do you believe God? Will you go with him all the way? Now, it turns out the man with the dog was going to the same parking lot as me. I like to think it made the choice a little bit easier. Maybe it made it more awkward. I don't know. He didn't have to remember all the instructions. He didn't have to trust my directions or run off on his own. He could run beside me and enjoy a bit of company and conversation along the way. God does not insist that we trust him and then leave us alone. Like, oh, see you at the finish line. 
He sends his spirit into our hearts that when we believe God, we have God with us all the way. But let's return to our opening question. If you have once believed God, if you're a Christian, how are you continuing forward? If you started out with the spirit, by what means are you now living the Christian life? Those who live by the spirit, who walk by the spirit, you must understand the way in is the way forward. Those, that is, those who are the children of Abraham. Abraham didn't have a lot of physical children. But in the plan of God, of course, Abraham's spiritual children are now as numerous as the stars in the sand. So I would beg you, don't be foolish. Shake off the bewitchment and trust yourself to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful and we are grateful for this text. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for your kindness in delivering it down through the ages that we might read it and understand more of you and your ways. Help us to live and to walk in step with the gospel. In Christ's name, amen.